In the 18th century, Native Americans living in Appalachia prayed to a wide assortment of spirits. They were called Manitou. And there are spirits for all kinds of forces and beings. Uh, there, there is a spirit of thunder. Uh, there is a spirit of the bear, all the way down to a, a spirit of the strawberry. This is Adam Jordner, a historian at Auburn University. Jordner describes this native religious tradition as a spiritual marketplace. You're always bartering with different spirits and trying to get different goods and boons from them. And individual Native Americans or Native American groups might venerate different Manitous. Those beliefs baffled Christian colonists who got their spirituality from a very different kind of marketplace. Monotheism is, is like a Walmart. You go to one god to get everything. Now, natives also believed in a supreme god, a so-called master of life. But unlike the Christian god, the master of life created the universe and then left it alone. But there's a problem, uh, and that is, of course, that the disease is ripping through Native American communities. And you know, as we get into the 18th century, there's pressure from white communities that are expanding westward, and they're taking Native American land. You're still praying to Manitou. You're still making sacrifices as you normally would, but you aren't getting the benefits. This is a spiritual crisis as well as a, a political crisis. Your, your religion isn't working anymore. While natives desperately searched for help, a divine solution presented itself to a Delaware Indian named Neolin. Neolin, uh, we, we know almost nothing about where he came from, and we know almost nothing about what happened to him. But from 1761 to 1766, he transforms Indian life west of the Appalachians. One night while he was cooking dinner, he saw three paths just appear before him, and he got the feeling that he needed to walk down these paths. And Two of those paths led to fire. And one of those paths, the most difficult paths, he sort of walks along and he encounters a sheer mountain wall and he is informed that he needs to climb this wall using only his left hand and his left foot. And he climbs wow. up and at the top of this mountain, there is a celestial city. And that is where he meets the master of life. And the master of life informs him about the changes that need to happen. Uh, they need to institute worship of the master of life. They need to give up alcohol. They need to reject national designations. There shouldn't be any more Ottawa's or Ojibwe's or Iroquois. These designations need to go away and everyone needs to be one group of Native Americans, the favored people of God. And if they do this, they can expel the British from their lands. So, uh, Adam, this trip that he takes uh, from that journey, he returns with the news uh, and, of course, that news is both spiritual, but it's also profoundly political, isn't it? I think so. I mean, it, it's it's both. Once his message gets out there, once people uh, start hearing about it, Native American groups start hearing about it, uh, the British become very wary of uh, of all this preaching. And probably Neolin's greatest convert is Pontiac, uh, who is an mm. Ottawa uh, chieftain who accepts this idea and says yes. And of course, it's Pontiac with this preaching behind him who begins to organize the tribes west of the uh, Appalachians into a fighting force that expels the British from most of their forts, from most of their military positions. Okay, tell us a little bit about the lay of the land, Adam, uh, that sets the stage for what's now known as Pontiac's Rebellion. Uh, he has specific targets. Uh, he wants to get rid of the British. Uh, what's the big picture here? 
I mean, the big picture is that uh, once Britain defeats France uh, in the French and Indian War, there's a huge chunk of territory uh, in what is today Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Midwest, that Britain takes control of but has never conquered militarily. They just occupy the French forts that are already there. Pontiac's goal is to attack every single fort, to expel the British, and in that way sort of force them out of the country. And they do just that. And uh, they can't, I think there's all but three forts are conquered. And, and actually at, at Michilimackinac, they conquer the fort by they're having a lacrosse game outside. Someone throws the ball into the fort and then they run into chase after the ball. And then once they're in, they take over. And they're successful enough that the British actually cave. And they say, this is not, it's not worth yeah. the blood yeah. and treasure it would take to conquer this land. The British set up a proclamation line in 1763. They actually forbid white settlement west of the Appalachians. Uh, so the British government is absolutely willing to say, you guys have won. Neolin's religion has won this war. So uh, talk a little bit, uh, Adam, if you would, uh, about the aftermath. Uh, Neolin's message remains powerful in Indian country, uh, and you might say it's uh, partly responsible for the tremendous resistance that's put up to uh, westward expansion over the next half century. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Pontiac's Rebellion is eventually rolled back, you know, by 1768. There are already breaks in the proclamation line and white settlers are coming across. But guns can't stop an idea. Um, yeah, you can stop a military rebellion, but those religious ideas are deep-seated and they move around. And um, that is not something that an army uh, is well-equipped to take care of. Neolin's ideas are going to take other forms in the next 50 years. There will be other prophets among other Native American groups who preach similar messages, who also take journeys along forked paths, who also meet the master of life, who mm -hmm. also preach about abstaining from alcohol, rejecting white culture. And these are people like the Shawnee prophet Tenskwatawa, who emerges in Indiana in the 1800s, uh, or Handsome Lake, the Seneca prophet, who emerges in upstate New York in 1799, and Kennecook, the Kickapoo prophet, who emerges in uh, 1819. These prophets all preach resistance to white encroachments, and they preach a religious message of divesting themselves of white culture and going back to the worship of the one god of Indians, the master of life. But like every new religion, it is not universally accepted. There are mm -hmm. Native American people and Native American groups that reject this message, that say, no, our traditional religions are correct. And in fact, it's these nativists, it's these new ideas from Neil and Tenskwatawa and Handsome Lake. These are wrong. These are causing our problems. Right. So right. it also creates conflict within the Native American communities uh, as well. Uh, which explains in part you know, why these ultimately you never get a situation where all Native Americans band together to fight white encroachment. But one of the things we're trying to do on this show is talk about what it is uh, about the American setting, about the, the world that Indians and Europeans both inhabit that might be distinctive. Uh, does Neelan's teaching and to the nativist religions that follow in his wake uh, do they seem somehow to you distinctively American? Would you argue that there's something that they have in common with uh, their counterparts across the cultural frontier? One of the things that makes Neolin's religion so distinctively American is, is movement. 
one thing that's true about the frontier and about Americans generally is they're always moving around. And right. that happens among Native American communities first, that the Delawares have been ejected from their lands on the East Coast and they've traveled and now they live in Ohio and there's been all kinds of movements in Indian country in the Seven Years' War. These are the communities that Neolin preaches to. And that's very true, I think, of American religions generally, that American new American religions tend to grow out uh, up on the frontier. Many new religions come out of Los Angeles, which is a city of people <laughs> who have moved right. Uh, right, to a right. new place. And that, I think, I think New Orleans religion is in many ways sort of the, that, the first religion to really take advantage of the fact that people are all moving around and, and they're, they're ready to hear a new message. Adam Jordner is a historian at Auburn University and author of The Gods of Prophetstown. Earlier, we heard from Estrelda Alexander. She's the president of William Seymour College in Bowie, Maryland, and the author of Black Fire, 100 Years of African-American Pentecostalism. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside, praise the Lord, I saw the light.